This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Randomness versus Choice. The Wire Game. Peruvian Mind Goblins. And the Georgia Guidestone. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more! Plain Gia is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs! Live on Kickstarter until November. November 18th. Search for Plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And, well, the dice, the dice are there, definitely the dice, but the miniatures, we got an astronaut, and we got some snake people, and we've got some <laughs> sort of uh, weebles, I think, from a, a kid's game. I'm not even sure what the... I don't even want to look in the Doritos, but i they do not look good. I, I and, think you may uh, be focusing on the wrong kind of, of randomness, but keep going. Yes. But welcoming us, uh, as opposed to Peter Frampton, is... John Cale, he's coming alive. He's always been alive. He's a, he's a lively fellow. And also, in addition to John Cale, not Velvet Underground, but someone almost as good, beloved Patreon backers Lauber Fenn and Nicola Wilson. Velvet Underground with Nicola, perhaps. Anyhow, they have suggested some axes of gaming design for us because gaming design and gaming design criticism are arts for the people, Robin. They are not for a beautiful elite such as you and myself there for everybody and yes and, and if two separate backers pointed out these access entirely separately from one another uh, it must be true and right and in fact yes they do point out to a, a set of axes that uh, uh we should address and, uh, and are about to and are about to and those axes are randomness, randomness versus choice and choice and so we're not speaking of the the randomness in the sense of utterly haphazard nonsense uh, although that could also apply, but rather to what degree decisions are taken for you by the dice versus you as a GM or even more often player making active choices that give you control over results in the narrative. So the most obvious example of this and one that shows an evolution in the corpus of game design thinking from uh, then to now is randomness in character design that back in the day with the good old-fashioned D&D, you would uh, roll up your attributes and then you would be stuck with them and that would determine then what player class you would play and uh, you would move on from there. And other games took that to a bigger extreme where a traveler had you rolling randomly to decide uh, what your space military career was and even famously whether uh, if you went one tour of duty over the line, you could randomly die during character generation, and that would be the end of your character, and you would start over again. Or, for example, another great example of randomness in character design was Villains and Vigilantes, where it's a superhero game, and you randomly roll all of your superpowers. So you might have, you know, fish control and uh, levitation and uh, uh, spider webs, and then you had to figure out why you had all of those things which was a, a fun exercise. Because you're Prince Namor and you beat up Peter Parker. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, the other end of that spectrum, of course, would be champions where you build your character and you decide entirely what that character is to various uh, loving and detailed degrees. And as I've sort of indicated already early on, the idea was it was the most fun to just 
randomly roll to see what you get, and then you could be stuck with it for a couple of years. And then later, over time, you go, you know, maybe players just actually want to pick the character that they want to play. Mm. And so there's still, you know, rolling your attributes randomly is still an option in uh, versions of D&D. But that is an example of practice and rules moving from the dice decide what happens, the randomness side versus uh, the players controlling what happens. But of course, that's not, Ken, the only thing that can be resolved either by dice or by choice. Yes. No, I mean, classically, we have gumshoe versus other games in which randomness does not determine whether or not you get a clue. Your choice determines whether you get a clue. Are you there? Are you asking for it? Then you get it. Sometimes you don't even have to be asking for it if the GM is uh, feeling their oats. So that's an area where you wouldn't have thought randomness could be taken out of the process, but in fact it was. And there are similar areas in which choice is constrained. And so rather than randomness via dice versus not dice, it's randomness versus player wandering off and doing something off key versus player having a constrained set of choices that move them through the genre or the story in a uh, more predictable way. And so, I mean, I think probably the best example is the way that Apocalypse World and all of its children enforce genre decisions by having a limited menu of moves that characters can make and a limited menu of character templates that you can play and thus drive play into well-channeled and well-mapped areas as opposed to running the risk that in your superhero game, everyone is going to, you know, suddenly start trading nutmeg and the whole thing is going to fall apart. So I, I think that that is a aspect of randomness of choice because it's not, you know, mechanical randomness in this case, it's structural randomness. Can things happen in the game that are not the game's core activity or that are not what the game thinks it's about? And, you know, on the absolute level, you have games like uh, Joe Prince's uh, great game Contender, which is literally just the story of the rise and fall of a boxer, and you can't do anything else with it because it's not meant to do anything else. And so... To that extent, do you see that sort of uh, player constraint as uh, part of this randomness V choice? Or do you think that we've accidentally introduced yet another axe and we have to go? I think we're actually recapitulating. We're recapitulating previous, a previous uh, axe. With versus focus. Right. Uh, so um, so then I would say that with versus focus and randomness versus choice have, at the very least, a kindred relationship. Because... The point of, for example, making investigation free in Gumshoe is to encourage more of it. So once more, you are narrowing the focus, even though you're also removing randomness, correct? Right. You can also say that it has a relationship to emulation versus simulation, because the first wave of very simulationist games were like, well, let's simulate a world in which people get superpowers. And how do we find out what superpowers they have? They're going to roll on a chart. The rules tell them what it is. And then later you move to emulation. It's like, oh, well, actually, you know, we're playing fictional characters. And traditionally when uh, writers in passive media decide to write a fictional character, they decide what that character can do. And so that moves you toward choice. And also uh, this is a true continuum in that there are different stops along the way. So you mentioned the investigative abilities of uh, gumshoe, which are just straight up. Nope. You just decide that you got that ability. And if you decide to use it and there's information, you get it. Then there's a midway point, the general abilities where there is a die roll. So the dice do tell you what happens, but you get to greatly affect your odds, especially early on when you have points in your general pools that you can spend to sometimes essentially guarantee that you're going to succeed when you really want to. And there's still uh, suspense involved. And when we're talking about rolling a die to see what happens, the resolution part of narrative, uh, there are two reasons to do that. One is the simulative uh, reason of, well, at this level, you're, uh, as a gladiator, you're going to hit, uh, 45% of the time. So roll a uh, percentile dice and see if you're uh, under 45 versus the suspense of making a die roll, which is the emotional point to, you know, reference yet another access that we've talked about mm -hmm. before, where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. The GM doesn't know what's going to happen. We're going to find out. And that creates engagement when you uh, roll the die. So there's still the uh, suspense involved with a gumshoe general ability, but there's also control that you get to affect that. And 
Uh, as I've mentioned before, it used to be somewhat controversial among uh, some players to even allow enough authorship to spend a hero point to to do anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I'm sure that the original people who still who feel that way, some of them still do. But it's an objection that you hear less and less as people are less uh, doctrinaire about the division between them and their character and not wanting to have any authorship whatsoever. Obviously, if you don't like authorship and just want to feel that you are a bopping around in a completely simulated environment where you're only thinking what your character would be thinking, which of course no one actually does, Mm. you're going to want something that has a high randomness and also having to choose a choice, not always fun. People sometimes like to have the dice tell them what's going to happen because they don't want to go through the emotional question of, do I really want this or whatever other uh, authorship is required because it is uh, more relaxing, more passive almost to let randomness decide things than uh, to always have to pick. I think that it's certainly possible to play high choice games immersively because I've seen it done. So I don't necessarily think that randomness is the only way to do lack of authorship sorts of play. I, I think that that is really almost a player choice that they bring to it and will jam into the rule set however they can. I also think that we can talk about whether or not the randomness is player focused or GM focused because there are ample games where, uh, again, as in Apocalypse World, only the player rolls, the GM never rolls, or in uh, Blades in the Dark, I believe it's the same principle. So the Yellow King is the same. Yeah. So we have games where the randomness is offloaded onto the players. They can still blame those dirty dice for their uh, dumb idea having blown up in their face, but the GM is then the 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 director of, of the story in a. I think kind of a more real way, more, more meaningful way than if the GM is also constrained by the same dice and you can't, or you can't arbitrarily or for narrative reasons suddenly make the monster that much tougher or whatever else. And so I think that it's interesting to see the way that that works. And I imagine that you could, you know, with a game, you know, maybe something like Amber where the player characters are just assumed to be amazing and succeed in, you know, nine out of 10 cases, and you give them nine poker chips and say, those are your successes, play them at will. And then the GM is the guy who has to roll and then see whether or not his universe can affect these sort of uh, godlike characters. I think that'd be a, a fun way to play. Um, I forget the Lords of Creation. Remember that shambolic Avalon? Was it Avalon yes. Hill? Speaking of all sorts of nonsense. Jam- <laughs> yes, right. And speaking of randomness, that, that was randomness, uh, Naplu Ultra. But I feel like that would be a way to play that sort of, you know, demigod level game where the players are the only actors in the world with choice and uh, the rest of the world is consumed in randomness. I think that would be kind of artistically interesting. I think that would make Exalted pretty fun, too. And it would certainly speed the game along if the players never had to roll. But I guess people who like Exalted like rolling those giant dice pools. So maybe I'm crazy person. And of course, choice does not equal predictability, especially when there are many choosers. Mm-hmm. So there are in a drama system, for example, in the dramatic scenes, you have all sorts of control over the narrative, but also no ability to predict where it's going to go when there are mm-hmm. other players also deciding things. So that that can be just as suspenseful, even though unless you're resorting to the procedural rules, which happens very rarely, there's no real randomness in the system. And even the randomness in the procedural rules is constrained by you having a certain number of successes and middling results and failures that you have to dole out over time. So just because everybody gets to pick what happens, if you have enough pickers and they're interacting with each other, that is the same as having a completely randomized rule setting universe. And also there's complexity can stand in for randomness and create another level of unpredictability. So for example, in a rule set, which is not only has random resolution, but just a lot of different crunchy bits that interact with each other, uh, essentially at a given point in an F20 game, you, the GM, are going to have very little idea how any given encounter is going to go just because the players have so many different powers that they could bring to the table and will often surprise you with one mm-hmm. that you hadn't anticipated and force you to, you know, think what to do next. And so that's another level of complexity being its own 
uh, randomness and sort unpredictability on top of the uh, the dice focus randomness. Something to the notion that increased complexity favors both the GM and because it, it, it favors both people of mastery over the system, which is often the GM, but it also creates a richer broth, if I can say that without it sounding normative, for emergent play because so many weird things can emerge from it. And it may not be sensible play or even satisfying play if you've set up this big encounter and the players are like, oh, I take my ring of flight and I just fly over it. And then you are shaking your fists in impotent anger, which is good for everyone's ego for 30 seconds, but it does not fill the unforgiving three hours that you had meant for them to be fighting their way through a series of uh, mountain fastnesses. So the openings in randomness in design, I think, are openings that when you go through them, tend to redound. I, I think they tend to redound primarily to the game master because if everything washes out in randomness, they're the people who almost by definition have a, a greater amount of choice, even if the players were able to build their characters, you know, with hand tooled precision, the GM has a whole world that they can likewise build. So it's, it's like playing, you know, it's like going to the casino, you know, you, you may be the best poker player ever, but the house still has the odds. So I feel like similarly, the more randomness you have in a game, everything else being equal, the more likely the GM's story is going to emerge relatively unscathed or am I insane now? It's certainly true that the GM can always throw in another dragon. Yeah. So that the constraints on the GM are less than the constraints on the player. So I don't think that. And so I guess a, a more choice oriented system possibly takes away many of the, the GM's uh, tools in that. The other advantage of a, a random system from the point of view of players, I think, is the once again, to go back to the vigilantes effect, which is it inspires you to come up with things that you wouldn't think up on your own, that the uh, you're outsourcing to the dice and the rules certain narrative decisions. Yeah. Another classic example is the wandering monster table, right? That nobody knows which monster you're going to fight or whether you're going to fight a monster in the corridor in old school D&D. And so it's a surprise to everyone. And it's easier for the GM to not have to think what comes next rather than letting the table do it. So there's the advantage of preference control for some things and the advantage of uh, making the dice do the work uh, in other areas. And uh, as you're designing a game, you may decide to be random whenever you can or random only in particular areas. So you may decide that in your version of a fantasy game, it's never interesting to fight a random monster. Or you may decide that it's interesting to only fight random monsters. And those would both be different extremes on the uh, sides of this continuum. And then, of course, choice can then be offloaded in, in some cases onto the designer because the person who writes the random monster table suddenly is the person who controls what's in the dungeon or the forest or wherever. And I find as a designer of setting that the random encounter table is remarkably underutilized because you, if you stock that table, you are doing so economical a job of telling the GM, this is what it's like in the world. You know, I'm amazed that uh, this is not, I mean, I, I tried to spread it a little bit through day after Ragnarok, but that's the sort of thing that I feel like, you know, and I feel like some, to some extent, the old school Renaissance picked up on that, that notion that those tables are a, a great place for creativity for designers or for GMs to really sort of put their stamp on the world without constraining choice that much. And I feel like that's that, that sort of compromise can go all the way up and down this whole axis. So what I guess I'm saying in summary is well done, Lauber Fenn and Nicola Wilson. Truly, you are the beautiful elite for having made us roll this randomly and figured out how our web powers and our fish talk powers all work together. Am I, am I wrong, Robin, to say that? I think you're absolutely right. And as far as we know, perhaps there will be a, a late breaking addenda after a, a pause. If, and I, I'm not inviting anyone to do this, but if someone <laughs> does come up with it's a, not a challenge, <laughs> yes, please don't. But if you do, uh, we may have to revisit and add uh, uh, yet another axis. So, so I think that what the whole series has illustrated is that there's no one thing to consider when you're designing a game that many of those, the things that you're balancing will relate to one another. And it's easier to put them all in organically than to give them all terms and analyze them and necessarily think about 
ahead of time where you're going to be in all the axes. But once you sort of get into trouble and wonder where you want to go, or if you're just a critic describing existing games, I think that these give us yet another framework, a loose one, to uh, analyzing and sometimes even designing games. I think all the best critical frameworks are exactly this loose, Robin. Yes, because if you make a tight critical framework, we, the creators, are going to look at it and try to bust it up. Yep. We're just going to be problem children. It's our way. But one thing we're not going to be is neglectful of our beloved sponsors. So let's roll randomly to see if we've encountered an ad in the corridor. Uncover the secrets that teem beneath the surface of your happy home. Suburban Consumption of the Monstrous is an anthology of American freeform live-action horror role-playing games. By magnificent game designer Banana Chan. And designer and illustrator Sadia Buys. Explore food, consumption, horror, and the extraordinary ordinary. With solo games as well as LARPs for up to and more than four players. Reverberant with influences ranging from Hannibal Lecter to Jean-Paul Sartre. Banana says it's too creepy and intense for the mass market. Which means it's perfect for Pelgrane Press. And perfect for you, beloved Ken and Robin listener. Discover what lurks in the shadows, growing and festering. Live on Kickstarter until November 18th. It's time once more to open the dusty files, lay out the clues, and put them all down on the crime blotter. And this time around, we're going to look at some old-timey crime, but at the time, technologically advanced crime, sort of a precursor even to, uh, you know, internet hacking back in the days of uh, the Telegraph, because we're going to uh, start by telling the story of Tim Oakes and Larry Summerfield, pioneering con artists and inventors of the Wire game, uh, sometimes wrongly described as the inventors of the Wire Tap, because that sounds even more exciting. But the <laughs> Wire game can in and of itself, plenty entertaining. It's darned entertaining. It's so entertaining, they made a great movie out of it. The Sting. Uh, I don't want to, you know, leave people in suspense. But if you are listening to us and you're not quite sure what we mean, watch The Sting. A great way to learn about it. Anyhow, Tim Oakes is the one who you can find way more information about online. So we will start with Tim, although everyone gives Larry the credit, but that's just the way of the world. Well, if you're a good con artist, you make sure that Tim gets the credit. Tim gets the credit and you vanish. Anyhow, Tim Oakes or Oates or many other pseudonyms is born in 1850 in New York. He becomes a pickpocket and he begins running the Badger game with his wife, Alice, who is also known as Ada. Again, I think that a a note that we're going to come back to over and over in this segment is that these guys changed their names a lot. And he ran the Badger game, which, of course, is the uh, famous game in which a female Confederate lures a uh, sexual partner who looks rich into her room. And then suddenly the husband, brother, boyfriend, father busts in and threatens to go to the cops because she's, you know, you know, underage or because it's uh, 1882 and you can just go to the cops as someone's touching your wife, daughter, whatever. And uh, you mulk the, the, the mark for money and, and send them shamefacedly on the way, ideally without pants. And he became very, very good at this. He did branch out. He became one of the greatest fainting fit thieves. And that was a thing where you would walk into a bar, ideally a bar that was doing really good business. And one of you would throw a big old epileptic seizure right in the middle of the floor. And when everyone was looking, the other guy would go behind the bar and empty the till and just leave. And, uh, he ran that in Philadelphia for a couple of years. Then he went to jail in Syracuse, New York, <laughs> I think as a pickpocket in this case. Then he goes back to Philadelphia and comes up with the idea of setting up a fake maid agency where women would come to him and he would say, I have a number of good positions out of state, but obviously they can't come. So I have to interview you. And if you will just pay you know, my interview fee, I'll guarantee you a job. And they would pay the interview fee. And then they would hear nothing because he would have scampered away with their money. And that's a scam that, that still exists today. And at, and at one point, there was a, a woman who was apparently so natural and wonderful that when she walked in to do the, the, her sob story of, of needing maid work, she convinced Oaks to loan her $25 because she didn't have the, <laughs> the, the fee. Oaks took that in good part. 
got back in touch with her and said, you're obviously wasted in this scamming maid agencies game. How would you like to hook up with me and my, my wife, who I'm sure will be cool with it and run the badger game. And, uh, he got a stable of talented young women and ran the Badger game, became the king of the Badger game in New York City until, you know, and again, the records are confused about who argued with who, but someone really argued that broke the system up and New York cops following a tip arrested him. Uh, they couldn't prove anything on him, but they told him if he left town, they wouldn't have to throw him downstairs a couple of times. So he goes off to England, meets another guy. Uh, they get in a fight. And so he goes in jail in England for fighting with his criminal partner, not for any crime that he committed. Well, any crime against non-criminals that he committed. Gets out of jail in England, hates that, comes back to New York City. And in New York City, he teams up uh, between New York and Washington. He teams up at some point with Larry Summerfield, about whom almost nothing can be found. Well, by me, I'm, right. I don't know that no one can find it. And, and, and while we're paused on that note, I'll just say that if Oaks is being kicked out of England in 1895, which is the year of the Paris segment of the Yellow King role-playing game. Who's to say, given the aforementioned paucity of records, that he didn't head over to Paris for a little while? Exactly. And, uh, perhaps he knows one of the player characters. Perhaps he's uh, involved in some sort of a scam that a, a wealthy a scion of a, a family who's now an impoverished art student would, uh, would know about. You could have him appear uh, briefly before uh, heading back to America for the rest of this segment. Yes, where, as I mentioned, he meets Larry Summerfield around 1897-1898. Larry is possibly known as Larry the Lug, and this is where we run into the fact that if you are a really successful con artist, you don't tend to show up in who's who. So for this, we have to depend, and <laughs> and I do not want to depend. I mean, I want to because it's a great book on the big con, the story of the confidence man by David W. Maurer, who is a linguist, basically he was a study of a student of slang and got interested in con games because con artists had fun slang wrote that book in 1940 and lays out a number of very straightforward looking facts. But he got them from habitual liars and criminals. So who's to say? <laughs> Those are the best kind of facts. Right. The fun facts. So Larry the Lug, under that name, shows up in Maurer's book. As Larry Summerfield, he shows up in newspapers, being referred to fairly universally as the inventor or Napoleon of the wire game. And uh, the newspapers, by the way, referred to it as the wireless wiretap game to throw you know further confusion into it. Um, I will point out that uh, they used that because they were differentiating it from the actual wiretap game. Because in 1888, a conspiracy of telegraphers ran the actual wire game. And the wire game, I guess we should pause now to explain what it is. The notion is that in the days when racing results, uh, horse racing results would come in over the wire, over the telegraph, if you could delay the telegraph or get advance notice, you could place a bet before the official result came into the betting parlor and you would have advanced knowledge of who won. So you go up, you place all your money on such and such a horse to win. When you've, uh, get the actual results are, are allowed into that parlor, then sure enough, you collect your money and you go off. And so that is the uh, wiretap game. If you have the telegraphers in a ring holding up, uh, racing news so that their Confederates can, for example, swindle a Buffalo bookie out of $35,000. And in 1888, that was real money. In Hot Springs and in Chicago, wiretap games of, of this sort made uh, $200,000, again, in 1880s money. And then Western Union clamped down on their telegraphers because people were complaining and uh, sort of made it impossible to run a, a real wiretap game, which meant that the field was open for doing the fake wiretap game where you claim you have a conspiracy of telegraphers on your side. But what you actually have is a fake betting parlor that you've installed with seemingly real telegraph lines, an actual, if delayed, horse announcing system, a big betting board, lots of people to come in and out looking like they're betters, staffs, waiters, the whole nine yards. It's called the big store as a general uh, principle because it involves having an enormous fake front in which you pretend something is going on. And of course, the mark walks into this big, real looking betting parlor, probably has not been in a lot of betting parlors, certainly sees nothing to uh, distinguish this one from an actual betting parlor. And so 
because you actually control the telegraphs in that betting parlor, you can then run a wireless wiretap in which you are faking the news because you do have advanced knowledge because you've got the real telegram and you just wait, you know, a minute or 30 seconds or whatever to release it into the fake betting parlor. All of which is to say that David Maurer, contrary to newspapers at the time, says that a Canadian man, and Robin, you'll be proud of this, named Chris Tracy invented the wire game in 1898. And he says that Larry the Lug Summerfield did not begin running his game until 1899. Now, again, I am morally certain that you cannot go down to the Hall of Records and examine the wiretap game records. So who can say where Maurer got this very real looking information, but I'm going to throw it out there. But anyway, uh, Larry Summerfield and Oaks ran it and they ran it well. Fred and Charlie Gondorf, who were brothers, got into it. It was a confederate of Oaks's who apparently brought the uh, secret of the wireless wiretap or the wire game to the Gondorfs, a guy named Fitzpatrick, who was nicknamed Harry Gondorf. He was like uh, the extra Ramon or the extra stooge, right? So they, right. Um, uh, and, and Gondorf is the, is the name of the Paul Newman character in this right. thing. There's a little, yes, and exactly. And specifically he's named Harry Gondorf. And the impression being that he is meant to be this character now older and in 1936 instead of 1902 when the Gondorfs, however many of them there were perfected the system and they perfected it so well that Larry the lug Summerfield is sent to Sing Sing in 1904. There was a brief golden age right around 1900 when, because of New York appellate court decisions, if you were scammed in a con game, you couldn't go and get recourse if you thought you were engaging in illegal activity. Right, because so, the whole thing about this is it depends on someone thinking they're getting a leg up because they're getting access to the advanced telegraph information, mm -hmm. when, of course... It is the swindlers swindling the crooks. Right. Or the swindlers swindling the dishonest men in many cases. And in, in one case, someone swindled Henry Adams out of a huge chunk of money, you know, John Adams's great, great grandson, and just basically sat in court and said, Hey, you were in an illegal card game. The fact that you can't play cards is not my fault. And basically the only reason that guy went to jail, he was a, is he was a giant jerk about it and the jury hated him. So they nullified the judge's decision and just sent him to jail anyway. Anyhow, uh, Summerfield goes off to Sing Sing in 1904. He plays the organ at Sing Sing after a, a fierce competition to determine who got to play the organ. So that was his uh, life. He disappears from history with his 10 years. First thing you got to do when you get into prison is find the biggest organist and cut exactly. it so and, you can play the organ. Take him out so that you can play it. Find the biggest organ. Anyhow, so the Gondorfs are now left basically there with Tim Oaks. Wire Games, according to the New York police, made $750,000 in New York City in 1905. That is also the year that Oaks is arrested for running the wire game in the Tenderloin. And I'm wondering if maybe the legal protection was still over them because he's not sent to prison. He's sent to Ward's Island Insane Asylum, which is the sort of way the police used to wire around the law. <laughs> but, of course, they don't do that now. Right. And in 1905, being in an, in an insane asylum was not better than prison. No, if anything, you know, pretty bad. And, in fact, it was so pretty bad that uh, Tim Oakes died two years after being sent to the insane asylum at the uh, young age of 57 years old. So let that be a lesson to you kids. Don't run the wire game in 1905. So this is a little between the different time periods that our games are set in. I guess we've got some early wire games, as I suggested, in the uh, 1890s. So uh, how do we fit the wire game into a horror investigative scenario that it's obviously got to be sort of a, a background element? And uh, I guess the easiest way is uh, somebody is killed mysteriously. The obvious reason that they were killed would be that they scammed somebody in the wire game. But the real reason, of course, has to be something occult and weird uh, that doesn't uh, fit that colorful but mundane explanation. I feel like you could run a, a sorceress wire game or a spiritualist wire game. I mean, that to some extent is just spiritualism, is pretending you get news that people then pay you money to act on. But you could imagine a system in which someone you know, there are actual ghosts and necromancy. You, the player characters, know that. 
you're dealing with another rival spiritualist who always seems to get bigger, uh, richer, fatter clients than you. You investigate, you determine that they don't actually have magical powers and they're running a spiritualist version of the wire game where they're faking the ghost phenomenon. And so rather than the sort of standard Houdini versus the uh, mystics thing, where you just assume that all spiritualists are crooks in a game where you, the player characters have spiritualist powers and you're in a whole ecosystem of spiritualists, having a sort of Scooby-Doo spiritualists who are running a uh, version of what real spiritualists did, that could be kind of fun. And you could sort of, take elements out of the wire game where I think that people don't really cross those streams. And I think that would be great fun. Also, of course, as I mentioned, the sting takes place in 1936. Uh, the wire game was mostly dead in America by then. It would, it was still being run in smaller cities down to about 1920. There was a new crop of post-World War One millionaires to be fleeced. People figured out other better ways to fleece them, certainly more, more efficient ones than building an entire fake establishment. But you can imagine a smaller city in the twenties or thirties uh, where some version of the wire game is still going on. And maybe the way that they've worked it is they've got, you know, some sort of necrophone that can uh, tap into the telegraph of the dead. And, you know, classically all the way back to ancient Greece, if you wanted to find out the future, you'd talk to ghosts. So maybe they've got their own wiretap game. And instead of crooked telegraph operators, they've got, uh, the spirits of the dead. So that's the inverse of the fake spiritualists. You have real spiritualists using it to run the wire game. And of course, there's all sorts of other things that con artists could come to sorcerers for. Uh, we mentioned that they keep changing their identities and their names. There's lots of 40s movies about getting plastic surgery that suddenly makes you look like Humphrey Bogart when you did previously. And uh, the plastic surgery that is a supernatural face transmogrification would seem, you know, actually to work that way. And, uh, of course, after that, it's like, well, do you bump off the sorcerer because he's the only one who knows what your previous face looked like? And what do the other sorcerers do when they find out that uh, one of their number has been uh, bumped off? And that could be the investigation as you find someone who has uh, changed your face. And, of course, there's all sorts of other uses. They that call him Johnny Polymorph. Make. Yeah. They're not calling him that now. There's other, you know, uh, efficacious magics that, uh, whether it's a good luck charm to tip you off that the cops are coming and all sorts of. Uh, and as you suggest that once those things exist and are known to exist, there will be uh, fakers uh, selling fake ones and the people who are selling the real ones might want to come and uh, clean up the trade. So there's, it's a vivid, fun, uh, kind of old timey time when, uh, you know, there's, they're, uh, smart criminals in an, an earlier age and it's got a great uh, sort of uh, quality to it. So an idea of uh, running something that, uh, refers uh, back to the sting. And uh, perhaps adding a little magic, I think, is uh, pretty beguiling. And, you know, from touching your nose to twinkling your nose like uh, Samantha, not that far. Exactly. Uh, well, I think it's uh, time for us, however, to go far, to go very far, to go all the way across this bridge where there's a commercial in the middle and a hut on the other side. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Protect this podcast from wily Gondorfs alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Alexander Shendy, Hyperlexic, James Kiley, Jonathan Donald, and John Buckley. The mysterious footprints on the moor, the strange shadows on the side of the cave, the lovingly detailed random table welcome us into the monster hut, that most dangerous and creepy of huts, except for the horror hut, which is creepier, but it's still the most dangerous. Yes. This may be the fightier hut. Yeah, it's a fightier hut. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not as fighty as the fighting hut, but we don't go there very often. Anyhow, uh, today we are going not just to the monster hut, but to the mountains of Peru, the country that gives us fine, high-grade copper and lovely, delicious potatoes, and also a mine goblin called the Mookie. And uh, this is sort of, it, it's interesting that uh, if you're in a mine, you kind of Think of the same sort of stuff, because this is not at all unlike the kobold of uh, German miners or the knockers of Cornwall. But there are a couple of local points of interest, which I guess, Robin, do you want to tell us where the Mookie is coming from? Yeah. So as you point out, if we want to be, you know, myth-splainy about it, clearly we're personifying the dangers of life uh, in the mine. Uh, so the, the Mookie... Uh, which means asphyxia in Quechua. And the idea here, back to being Miss Blaney, is that, well, perhaps that is a uh, about coal dust in the lungs, or perhaps the Mookie comes up and strangles you because it's a scary, creepy monster. Please, people. So he's known in Peru and also in Bolivia, Colombia, and Ecuador. Uh, there are various regional names. We are choosing Mookie, and is the most common one because it is the most pronounceable. <laughs> this is one we have to say a lot during this segment. Yeah, but it, it's also known as the Jushi or the Chinchiliku. And uh, the, the Mookie comes from the, the underworld. He comes from the uh, Ukupacha, the world of below. And the way you know that you're running into a Mookie when you're down in a mine in, in Peru or uh, nearby is uh, he's a humanoid. He's no more than two feet tall. So he's on the... He's on the short side. This is no Tolkien dwarfs. These are small little dudes. But like many of the uh, diminutive creatures of the underground, he's very strong. Uh, he's uh, got a brawny, distorted physique. And of course, because uh, this is known in all sorts of different regions, we're going to come to a bunch of different variations. But in general, uh, let's say that uh, he has no neck. Now, it doesn't mean that he has a floaty head. It just means... He's like, a, he's, he's like a, a, a linebacker. So, yeah, that's the distorted features going on there. You've got the torso, you've got the head, no noticeable neck. They have long blonde hair, a white beard, and a red face. And then there are uh, other details that come and go. They often have mesmerizing eyes. Uh, sometimes they glint in metallic fashion. Now, some of your Mookies have rock-breaking horns, and others, I guess, have no horns. Uh, so uh, that implies that they themselves are doing some sort of excavation or have some reason to want to break rocks. Those, of course, when we get to the monster fighty bit, that's one of the many weapons, I assume, that the Mookie has at his disposal, is that he can mm -hmm. gore you with his horns. Yep. Although, as suggested earlier, it sounds like he's a bit of a strangler, frankly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you, you can choke and gore, I think. I feel like if you're a proper Mookie, and indeed... Mookies nowadays, when you see them, they're carrying flashlights and lanterns, and as I assume a pickaxe, and they're wearing mining gear. And the and the way that you tell them then is, on the one hand, they're two feet tall, but you know, the other way is they often have a vicuña cape made from the vicuña mountain goat. Yes, or, or a poncho, depending on on their particular sartorial choices. Yeah, uh, we should also mention that they're sometimes described as. Uh, walking like ducks. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes they have pointy ears, which I think is just elf yeah, stuff drifting just in. Elf talk. I'm going to suspect they don't have pointy ears. One universal trait they have, though, is they have a deep voice. Yeah. They sound like Harvey Firestein. So uh, I guess gives them a level of authority that you would not normally have. If you're two feet uh, tall two feet and blonde. Tall. Yeah. I, I want to briefly do a sidebar here because the Vicuña cape puts me in the mind of the similarly named Oki. A-U-K-I, or Alki, which 
is a mountaintop spirit, and it lives up on the tops of the mountains, and it in many ways resembles the Mookie, but it keeps vicuñas as its sheep. And the notion that you would herd them up on the top of the mountain in the same way that people herd sheep at the bottom of the mountain, and they have condors that they either fly around on or use as like their falcons that they're their little their own, you know. So it's the whole mountain ecology up there of the Alki, and I'm wondering if we have Alki at the top of the mountain and Mookie at the bottom of the mountain, if there's some sort of key commonality that, you know, either the Mookies hate the Alkies or the Alkies, you know, they all have kids and they run, they go down and run the mines and become Mookies for a while. I just feel like there's, there's more going on in these mountains. Just wanted to throw that in there. Right. Well, they have the Vicuña capes and or ponchos. Either they are going up and fighting the Ukies and taking the Vicuña hides, or I think more likely it's a trading arrangement. Yeah. Right. If you're mining, Mm -hmm. it implies that you're going to do something with all of the ore and valuables that you mine. Mm -hmm. You don't go to a human city. So what do you do to to, with your ore? You go and buy Vicuña capes. It's a a limited economy, frankly. Right. And and that's why interactions with humans come into it, because it turns out that uh, Mookie's also crave, in addition to uh, pelts, booze, coca or the company of women. And we're going to focus on the first two of those. Yes. As somewhat less gross. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I, I think the miners are also kind of hard living uh, folk. Uh, yeah. But at any rate, one reason you can notice that you're beginning to encounter before you actually meet the Mookie if you're a miner is your coca leaves, which, of course, you chew on in order to keep you going, are mysteriously disappearing. And you might at first think, well, just one of my friends is taking them. But no, it turns out to be a Mookie. And the folk tales that involve these creatures are generally that the, someone befriends a Mookie, makes a deal with them, and then uh, the deal goes terribly wrong, usually because the person uh, is greedy and stupid, and then the Mookie kills them. And uh, sometimes the Mookie just uh, strangles and chokes them, or sometimes the Mookie makes the mind fall in, because the Mookie can do that, he being a mind spirit. So be careful down there with your coca leaves. And also, uh, let's uh, some of the other useful powers that a, a Mookie has, uh, if you're a miner, is he can, uh, if you don't care for your tools and equipment and they get all rusty, the Mookie can uh, get them all spick and span and new and de-rust them, which is a great deal. And they can make veins of metal appear, which is the main thing you want when you're a miner, is to have a magical being show you where the good ore is. But of course, you would they think can that also would be worth them. any amount of booze and coca, Robin. Yeah, there's a reason you want to make a deal with them. Not just that they, you want to stop them from killing you. Mm-hmm. However, of course, they can also make veins of metal uh, disappear. And that's, of course, is uh, what they do to you, you know, one vengeance stop short of them uh, goring you or strangling you. And somehow, although I have to admit that I'm not a million percent clear on this, they also kidnap children. And I don't know if that means that you have children who are sent down into the mine to bring daddy his booze and coca, or if the Mookies leave the mine heads and go down to the mining villages and attack children. Yeah, Either I think way, that's what's happening. That, that, I don't like yeah, it. I think there's some mythic drift here because there's another child stealing a Peruvian goblin and he lives in the jungle and they're called the Chulachaqui and they have doppelganger powers so they can like turn into your loved ones and trap you. But you can tell who they are because they, they can't ever change their goat foot. So they're recognizable by that. There's also though this idea that the Muki themselves are coming out of the mines to kidnap children. And this seems like I'm going to guess some enterprising priest uh, came up with this uh, motivating factor by saying that they specialize in kidnapping unbaptized children. And so obviously someone was telling somebody to do this so that they would baptize all their kids. Don't want the Mookie to get your kids. And that was too vivid, got out of hand and became part of the myth. Then the myth also transmogrifies so that sometimes it's unbaptized children turn into Mookies. And that's where they come from. They're humans who have unbaptized and they turn into demons and then they go into the mines, I guess. Uh, but there's also the thought that there are forest Mookie who live in fig or banana trees. And this all seems very messy, but of course, when it comes to creating different variants of monsters, we all understand what's going on there. You can't just have one Mookie. You've got to have all sorts of different Mookies with their right, various the specialty Mookies, uh, sub sub Mookie powers. So you've got some who lives in, live in trees and they, uh, kidnap or cult program unbaptized children and turn them into into Mookies, or they may uh, be in conflict with the mine Mookies. They may be a part of a complicated, you know, economy. Maybe they are giving bananas to the 
spirits on the mountain and getting Vikinia coats. We just don't know how complicated that gets. It's a triangle trade of some sort, sounds like. Well, Robin, this is all very terrifying uh, that there are mind goblins out there taking your booze and coca. But tell me, if one is encounters a Mookie, one discovers that either because of their Vicuña cloak or because of their weird duck walk or because of their deep voice, is there something that we can do? Is there something that we can advise our listeners, perhaps, to do? There is something that uh, in uh, the Esoterrorists we refer to as the special means of dispatch, the SMD, the way that you kill a particular monster in the case of the Mookie is you whip them with your belt. But you have to make sure there's no fear in your heart. Right. So it seems easy until you get to the second part yeah. of not having fear in your heart when you're whipping them with the belt. So that's what you do in real life. But of course, uh, this is a role-playing game podcast, at least in part. And so can what can we possibly do in role-playing with a sinister creature that dwells underground and uh, jumps into people who go deep into the underground into the world below? Is there any sort of gaming application for I mean, something like I, I I think you'd probably have to build something like that from the ground up. And ideally, you'd have to do it in 1974 and be Dave Arneson. I mean, that's really <laughs> the only thing I can think of yeah. as, as a designer. Yeah, uh, obviously, Mookies are what kobolds were before they became little stupid dragons with no kobold powers. They're what knockers were. And uh, if you couldn't uh, let 12-year-old boys run a game with a monster called knockers without laughing. So basically, the Mookies are, are old school. They're the OG mining goblin. And... They uh, can be a whole race like gnomes and dwarfs are that, that live underground and have their own kingdom. Maybe again with the Aukis and the Chulachakwis, or maybe they're one-off monsters that are, 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 you know, created by children that are, you know, under some sort of bad spell or, you know, they don't worship at the shrine of St. Cuthbert the way that they're supposed to, or maybe um, they just sort of molt out of the rock because they're actually uh, little rock elementals. And then they take human form uh, to go out and get that sweet booze and coca. I mean, who can say, right? The, you've right. got a, a lot of different versions of Mookie. I feel like if you're doing a sort of a post-colonial D&D, you could have dwarves, right? That are going into a new mountain. And then the Mookie are like, oh, no, we don't want no dwarves. We're Mookie. This is, this is a different country than your country. And so you can have a, a bit of a, you know, to what extent will you, the players, decide to make war on these Mookie or exploit them versus is there something else? And, of course, is you talking yourself into killing them actually a better solution than just killing them because they attacked you? One die, four of them did that. In a horror game, their interest in coca leaves could bring us to the modern day where they not only carry flashlights, but have been involved in the uh, cocaine trade, uh, perhaps some enterprising Dealers are uh, hiding their wares uh, in a disused uh, mine, and uh, the Mookie are uh, getting a hold of it, and then murders ensue. You could, of course, how you want to handle the uh, is it a Mookie or not mystery is you could have, you know, murders near an old Peruvian mine, and uh, everybody says it's the Mookie, which, of course, means it's something else. Or uh, you don't know what it is, which, of course, means it turns out it's the Mookie, but they're super scary and nasty and they're like from the descent style cave dwelling horrors yeah evil chuds and then i guess i should mention obviously that august derleth thought that the caves of peru were full of cthulhu so if you want to sort of emphasize the weird uh, lopy walk and the deep voice and the no neck and the lambent blinking eyes you've got some sort of cave deep one uh that is spalled off of cthulhu who lives uh, deep in uh, the lake in uh, the Andes. And then you also, of course, uh, in a fall of Delta Green situation, uh, this is when the CIA is helping the Peruvian government extirpate the first bunch of Maoist rebels. And Maoist rebels, as I believe we all know, recruit from miners and hide in caves. So it may be a situation where the Muki are eating the Maoists or where the Maoists are turning the Muki against the uh, CIA and therefore you as Delta Green have to come in and sort that out. Hey, Mookie, you've got nothing to lose but your lanterns. Exactly. And your Vicuña cloaks. Well, they don't want to lose their Vicuña cloaks, and neither do we. So let's uh, wrap them tightly around ourselves as we head to the final hut of this episode. (laughs) 
fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing we're now going to enter something that is so secret that it doesn't have a whole head in fact it just has a corner this is the most paranoid corner of all, where we uh, look at our cork board, where we connect things with red bits of thread, and then we go to the computer and get on Facebook and talk all sorts of craziness, because we're in the conspiracy corner. And this time around, we've been beckoned into that uh, most dark and dismal corner of this uh, podcast and the internet by Andrew Miller, who wants to know about the Georgia Guidestones. So, Ken, this is... Uh, I thought initially it might be a Liptony, but it's it's just called good old conspiracy because it's a, yeah. a mysterious but not paranormal and not particularly attractive granite monument that uh, went up relatively recently in 1980 in Elbert County, Georgia, which is about a two-hour drive uh, from Atlanta. And uh, describe uh, this, what is called the American Stonehenge, is which is not. a big insult to Stonehenge, <laughs> yes. i got to say. And something of an insult to America, quite frankly. The Georgia Guidestones are basically six granite slabs, and they stand up, and there's, I think, four of them that point in the four directions. And then on the top, there is a capstone that lies on top of it, and there's a slab in the middle of that four, of that sort of radiant cross. And those are the six stones. It's about 19 feet tall. The granite slabs weigh about 40,000 pounds a piece. So good luck moving them. Yeah. And, and if you're wondering how much they weigh, there's a helpful inscription to give you all of the exciting specs of these yep. slabs in case yep. you were wondering. Yeah, it's very helpful. And the way that they got there was not uh, Merlin. It was a man named R.C. Christian. And by named, I mean, that's the name that he gave. <laughs> And he showed up at the Elberton Granite Fishing Company in 1979 and commissioned this sculpture. And uh, the Elberton Granite Fishing Company in the person of Joe Fendley said, uh, well, this is insane. And he <laughs> quoted him a gigantic price to make him go away. Something that I believe that we've all done. And every now and again, though, <laughs> your your go away money is accepted. Yeah. yeah, that's why you had to write the My Little Pony role-playing game. Exactly. And so... Uh, R.C. Christian ponies up, speaking of ponies, and they bought uh, the land from a farm owner uh, in the area and built the slabs. And the slabs, of course, right. if they were just slabs, you'd say, well, there you go. Someone wants to do Brutalist Stonehenge, whatever, knock yourself out. But in fact... Right. But these, these slabs were commissioned to be capable of, quote, withstanding catastrophic events. Uh -huh. And they were funded not only by R.C. Christian, but a, quote, Small group of loyal Americans. The best kind and of And that group. doesn't ring any alarm bells at all. No, Robin, please. First of all, Rosicrucians are loyal to the spirit of America, not to some nugatory concept. Because, of course, obviously, longtime listeners to the hut will recognize R.C. Christian as Rosicrucian code. But the Rosicrucians have updated their utopian guidelines for the world. The guidelines that they have carved onto the stones are in eight languages, English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. And the 10 principles are, to run through them very rapidly, uh, maintain humanity under 500 million, uh, 
guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Uh, we're, we're two principles in already yeah. double cringe. Well, number one, it's genocide. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess once you've done genocide, eugenics is really just sort of the, yeah. you know, moving violation you tack onto it. Well, it, you, you got to give him points for like starting with genocide yeah, and then going is, to the more. This uh, is very much the if you if it's in the trailer, you know, it's going to be in the movie. You, you walk out now. Uh, unite humanity with a living new language. So Esperantists everywhere are like, then why wasn't it carved in Esperanto? <laughs> or they're saying that in their crazy duck they're language. They're saying that in Esperanto. In so Esperanto, so no one can listen to them. Rule, passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Well, that's just good advice. Tempered reason, that's number one thing I associate with mass genocide. With yep. mass genocide and Esperantists. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts after the genocide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the. Was this Thanos? Did, did Thanos put this <laughs> did up? Thanos, did Thanos do this? I don't think Thanos would have taken 10. In fairness to Thanos, I feel like Thanos would have really just had the one stone. Um, let nations rule internally, and there should be a world court. Uh, this is like dumber than Esperanto. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Look, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to prevent genocide. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's a more useless official than the guy, you know, guiding your reproduction wisely, I'd like to hear about him. Balance personal rights with social duties. Again, unexceptional by itself, but in the context of the rest of these stones, <laughs> alarm bell. Prize truth, beauty, and love, seeking harmony with the infinite after genocide and during it eugenics. It says infinite in it. This is Thanos. <laughs> yeah, this is Thanos. Be not a cancer on the earth, Robin. Thanos. And I feel like if you if you would leave room for nature, leave room for... <laughs> it's so important. It's so nice. They carved it twice. Is this signed Thanos McThanos by any chance? And then... Uh, <laughs> right. R.C. Thanos. No, that's too obvious. Uh, let these gu be guidestones to an age of reason. And they've got all of their texts. They've got uh, sponsors, a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason, that there's a time spot, uh, a time capsule to be opened on with no date. They set it up so that um, a channel through the stone will indicate the celestial pole. You can see how the sun travels. You know, it's, it's a solar alignment. Everybody loves that. And my favorite thing about it is when you've got your granite thing with all of the, you know, physical data, you've got your ridiculous genocidal Esperantist principles. You've also got a typo because it says the author of all of this nonsense is R.C. Christian, a pseudonym. <laughs> and that's, that's the part that I think I love the best about the Georgia Guidestones is all of that. There's still a typo. Yeah. It's just, well, I it's love Thanos, it. So, you know, a lackey was killed over that. Exactly. Someone got choked uh, psychically. And you can imagine Joe Fendley noticing it as he's finishing saying, I literally don't care. <laughs> right. Just and going on. this has aroused the ire of other conspiracy theorists who, if you're afraid of a globalist future in which uh, there's perhaps a, a mass depopulation, this is your monument to, yeah. to go and vandalize. <laughs> you're again it. <laughs> it's been uh, vandalized uh, numerous times. Uh, in 2014, Isis herself, the the goddess of uh, uh, of love and power, uh, defaced it. So you know it's got to be an offensive monument if Isis stirs herself to go spray. Well, she is against guiding reproduction wisely. I feel. Yeah, I feel that's one of her big problems. She's she's not wrong. I mean, she's down with prizing beauty and love. Maybe not so much truth. Uh, she's got a lot of asks, very specific right. asks. And poor Yoko Ono, I assume not paying very much attention, interpreted <laughs> it as a. Uh, expression of her values and expressed praise for it. Contemporary Yoko Ono, not the 60s Yoko Ono, who I think would have been a little more suspicious or at least hated <laughs> bad art more. Well, you know, Yoko Ono thought a lot of things. She's a busy lady. And then uh, I will say that uh, conspiratologist and potboiler novelist Brad Meltzer suggests that it's not advice for now. That would be crazy talk. It's advice for after the nuclear war. When the survivors show up, they read on the tablets and they're like, well, we don't want to have another one of those. If only someone had left guidelines for utopia around. Oh, here they are. And then so in the future. <laughs> and, and like all utopian guidelines, like all the ultra terrestrials come and tell all the prophets to spread. It's all either pablum or in this case, see previous discussion of genocide. Yes. <laughs> Dangerous weirdness. And also there is a little bit of text. I guess I should point out in Babylonian, classical Greek, Sanskrit, and uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. So it, it's not just modern languages. There's also just a little soupçon of ancient goof. 
And I feel like that was... What if only the Babylonians survive the coming destruction? Right. They will need to be able to read this. I feel like that was the Otis in R.C. Christian's group who like just sort of had that put in without telling anybody. Because I think it throws off the, the vibe. Right. So this is inherently an esoteric operation. It has to be. where you would go to summon uh, the creatures from the outer dark. I'm sure the membrane is thin there as well. If you wanted to hide a body... Uh, you might describe it as the time capsule and put it into this crazy thing that nobody's ever going to uh, uh, think to dig up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, anything called the American Stonehenge uh, is going to be the sort of place where a really crappy demon uh, is eventually summoned. Or also Thanos. Yeah, or uh, Thanos. Is, again, he's not summoned. He just comes back to kill the guy who put a uh, typo in his granite stones. Yeah. That's what happens. I just hope he doesn't bother the poor contractors who, and I'm sure right. he respects the fact that they up their quote. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if Thanos respects anything, it's independent contractors. I yeah. think that was very clear in the movie. I, I think that, you know, the Georgia Guidestones are so big and so ludicrously galumphingly obvious that it almost has to be kind of the opposite of an op, that it's something that is put there not by, uh, the esoterists necessarily, but almost by, maybe not by the Ordo, but by some third actor who is like, well, how do we drive Ezoterror out rather than making everyone confused and angry and head up and deal with this juggling notion? Let's put a bunch of, and this is 1979, so the bit about genocide was very popular. Zero population growth, population control, Paul Ehrlich writing his uh, racist nonsense. Uh, that was all very big in 1979. And so they, you can imagine this, uh, anti-esoterror indie group thinking if we put a bunch of things that are just absolute pablum up, that will decenter the esoterror. And maybe Elbert County, Georgia used to have all manner of, uh, of horrible esoterrorist demons that had gotten through during the Civil War or something or during, uh, Jim Crow. And now they're like, well, thank goodness those demons are taken care of. Let's, and this, this is them sealing off the, the hellmouth with this big blocky bit of unexceptional at the time, although certainly exceptionable globalist goof, uh, juice, right? Right. And, and if you are, uh, you know, doing things irresponsibly and independently, if you just want to attract other people, you just want to track who in Elbert County shows up and seems to take this seriously and therefore might be also uh, dabbling with outer dark entities, you build this thing as sort of a, a, a trap and you set up uh, photography or it's, it's, you know, um, and since we talked about con artists earlier in the episode, this could all be part of some, you know, big elaborate con to grift a bunch of naive, uh, would be, uh, esoterrorists, uh, out of a bunch of money, <laughs> and some concrete and make sure that it's all of the right angles and all the, you know, the platitudes cancel out the evil. And it's, uh, you know, there may be some sort of marginal figures just going around and uh, he figures he's not doing anything wrong because he's just wasting their time and money, which they otherwise would be using to summon outer dark entities. Uh, but of course, eventually something bad happens to him and the trail leads back to a uh, group that was a little more competent than he reckoned with. Right. And, uh, Someone figured it out, figured out that he was running the Ezoterror wire game. Exactly. Uh, well, now that we've wrapped everything up in a neat little bow, uh, before we drag in any vicunia ponchos and over-egg the pudding, I think it's time for us to exit this podcast for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep stones out of this podcast pathway by joining such generous backers as... Josh King. Keelan O'Hay. Sean Stevenson. J.P. Morale. And J.P. Jesse Lowe. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Put on your best faces with our latest design. Ready for my close-up, Mr. Pickman. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>